Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Feeling Nervous About Meeting Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 8th, 2015, the third Sunday in Lent. I've spent the last 40 years reading about Jesus, studying Jesus, worshiping and writing about Jesus, trying to follow Jesus. All that's well and good, maybe even commendable, or at least I hope. One consequence of all my earnest effort, though, is that you become familiar with your subject matter. So familiar that I put Jesus into a nice, neat little box. And from there, it's a short step indeed to what Donald McCullough calls the dangerous illusion of a manageable deity. John's story about Jesus cleansing the temple warns me about domesticating the deity. Some people say that if we could get behind the Christ of faith and discover the Jesus of history, we'd understand him more. But I think the historian Gary Wills is right on this point. If we discovered the historical Jesus, he'd seem more rather than less mysterious to us. He'd look more like the epistle for this week of Paul to the Corinthians, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks a laughingstock. Perhaps we're all inclined to create Jesus in our own image. Thomas Jefferson's scissored-down Jesus is a mild-manner moralizer, guaranteed not to offend Enlightenment rationalism. Warner Salmon's portrait of Jesus with flowing blonde hair and saccharine blue eyes looks like he wouldn't hurt a flea. The cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2 is a delicate euphemism for the only violent act of Jesus. The story was important enough to be included in all four Gospels. It echoes those other sound bites in the Gospel where people were afraid after seeing Jesus heal someone, where his detractors were afraid to ask him any more questions, and where some disciples were so offended by Jesus that they quit following him. In other words, the cleansing of the temple reminds me that there's no business as usual with Jesus. As an observant Jew, Jesus would have joined the 300,000 people who had crammed into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. The temple building constituted the essence of Jewish faith in both literal and symbolic ways. It was a bustling nexus of commercial activity, crowds of worshipers, nationalist aspirations, political identity, historical memory, architectural splendor, and to be sure of religious affiliation. In the temple, Jesus encountered people selling animals to the pilgrims who needed them to make their obligatory sacrifices. He met the money changers, for worshipers also needed to exchange their Roman currency into Jewish money in order to pay the temple tax in the coinage of the so-called sanctuary shekel. At some point, all hell broke loose. 
Incensed at the sacrilege of it all, Jesus improvised a whip, thrashed the animals from the temple, scattered the coffers of the money, mar money market changers, and overturned their tables. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Later, his disciples remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, and attached a sense of prophetic fulfillment to the event. Zeal for your house will consume me. Maybe Jesus objected to any and all commercial activity in the temple, even honest transactions that were necessary for pilgrims to fulfill their religious obligations. Or maybe he detested the fraud, exploitation, and avarice of the religious authorities who controlled the means of ritual purity. Then things got even stranger. Jesus followed his violent act with an enigmatic saying. When asked to justify himself, Jesus refused. Instead of any justification or explanation, he said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Long after the event, his disciples interpreted this dark saying as a prediction of his death and resurrection. So what do this violent act and this dark saying mean? Some people see a prophetic prediction of the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. A simpler interpretation understands the story as a purification of the temple to its sacred purpose, as a place of prayer for all people, without manipulation or exploitation by the religious gatekeepers. A third nuance suggests that in his own body and not in the temple building. Jesus is the place where we meet God. The disciples must have tossed and turned a sleepless night that evening. It must have been terribly disconcerting to witness Jesus unhinged, throwing furniture, screaming at the top of his lungs, flinging money into the air. Perhaps they ran for cover with the crowd. I think I would have. Did they look him in the eye the next morning, or shuffle their feet, stare at the ground, and make small talk? The next day, the religious leaders confronted Jesus in those same temple courts. By what authority are you doing these things? It's an honest question. We shouldn't be too hard on the religious bureaucrats. They were just doing their job, keeping the peace, trying to determine what had happened in order to maintain the status quo. It's natural for authorities to question a boundary breaker like Jesus. But just like the previous day, Jesus answered their question with his own question. Was John's baptism truly divine or merely human? This trapped the temple teachers if they said it was merely human, they feared reprisals from the adoring crowds. And if they admitted that John's baptism was from God, then they had no excuse for not accepting it and repenting. In other words, they were caught between fear and disobedience. So Jesus didn't answer their questions, but instead said, 
Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And neither does Jesus answer all my questions today, many of which are good and honest questions. Why did my mother suffer 20 years of clinical depression? Why do religious zealots burn people alive in cages? Why do millions of children die from drinking dirty water? Instead of answering questions, Jesus tells a story. A lazy son refused to work, but then changed his mind and obeyed his father's request. His brother did the opposite. He promised to work, but then didn't. Jesus compared the temple authorities to the latter son. They made bold claims, but did little. Tax collectors and prostitutes, said Jesus, entered the kingdom of God before them, for they promised nothing, but nonetheless believed John's message of invitation and indictment. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis reminds us that the divine human struggle is neither tidy nor tame, but is nonetheless one that we can live with confidence. Susan and Lucy asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to describe Aslan, Lewis's representation of Jesus. They ask if Aslan is a man, to which Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who was the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? He who, who said anything about being safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The cleansing of the temple is a stark warning against every false sense of security. Like my safe and predictable Jesus, in the nice and neat box. Rather, Jesus comes to reveal rather than to reinforce my prejudices and illusions. He never says, understand me. He does say, follow me. The cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. For books this week, I review a title called Redeployment. The author is Phil Clay, K-L-A-Y, New York, The Penguin Press, 2014. This book is 291 pages. Phil Clay's first book, a collection of short stories about the Iraq War, won the 2014 National Book Award for Fiction. According to the judges,
The book is, quote, a brutal, piercing, sometimes darkly funny collection that stakes Clay's claim for consideration as the quintessential storyteller of America's Iraq conflict. After graduation from Dartmouth, where he attended officer candidate school, Clay, who was born in 1983, joined the U.S. Marine Corps. He served for 13 months in the Anbar province of Iraq during the surge, and then subsequently earned a Master of Fine Arts from Hunter College. One of the reasons he wrote these short stories is because of his concern about the gap between public mythology and lived experience, and how that affects both veteran civilian dialogue and the veteran self-perception. One critic described Clay's stories as a clinic in the profanities of war. In the story Operation Scooby, a soldier shoots a dog, shoots dogs that are eating the rotting corpses that litter Iraqi streets. Frago, an acronym for fragmentary order, illustrates the bureaucratism of the military in war. In the story After Action Report, a soldier takes the blame when his buddy shoots an Iraqi kid. And in Bodies, we enter the world of mortuary affairs. In OIF, we see the breathtaking stupidity of American civil reconstruction projects, like 50 baseball uniforms shipped to Iraq to teach them so-called sports diplomacy. It turns out the uniforms are sized for 10-year-olds. My favorite story was called Prayer in the Furnace, about a chaplain who tries to parse war in theodicy. He resorts to quoting St. Augustine sermonizing about the sack of Rome. Quote, Horrible it was told to us, the slaughter, the burning, the pillaging, the torture of men. It is true, many things we have heard, all filled with bellowing, weeping, and hardly were we comforted, nor can I deny, no, I cannot deny, we have heard many, many things we were committed, that were committed in that city. The New York Times listed this book, Redeployment, as one of the ten best books of 2014. Philip Clay, Redeployment. For movies this week, we go to Poland and the movie Ida from 2014. Pawel Polakowski's black and white historical drama is set in 1962 Poland. A young girl named Anna, who was raised in a convent, is a week away from making her vows to live forever as a nun. Before she does that, her mother's superior insists that she visit her aunt, who's her only living relative. She meets her aunt, a chain-smoking alcoholic and state prosecutor for the Communist Party, and so they make for an odd couple. Together, Anna and her aunt journey together back into their family history during the Nazi occupation each in their own way confronts questions about religious identity, faith, doubt, 
in despair. This 82-minute film has won 34 awards in 15 nominations in film festivals around the world. I watched it on Netflix streaming. In Polish, with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a Celtic poem or prayer. It's called, I am bending my knee. I am bending my knee in the eye of the Father who created me, in the eye of the Son who purchased me, in the eye of the Spirit who cleansed me, in friendship and affection. Through thine own anointed one, O God, bestow upon us fullness in our need, love towards God, the affection of God, the smile of God, the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the fear of God, and the will of God to do on the world of the three, as angels and saints do in heaven. Each shade and light, each day and night, each time in kindness, give thou us thy spirit. A Celtic prayer or poem, I'm bending my knee. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 8th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.